I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on this very special edition of Wise Girl. It is July 23rd, a steamy summer day here in New York City. And I am so pleased to be with uh, Dr. Dan Siegel today, one of the folks that I've received so many invaluable teachings from and really grounds a lot of what we're learning in terms of meditation with the science and the clinical approaches in terms of working with uh, clients over the years that he brings to the practice. And the new book that he has that just is coming out now, it is not even officially printed yet, but it will be soon, is Aware, the Science and Practice Presence, a Complete Guide to the Groundbreaking Wheel, and that wheel is his meditation uh, practice, which he'll talk about. He received his medical degree from Harvard and completed his postgraduate medical education at UCLA with training in pediatrics and child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry and served as a National Institute of Mental Health Research Fellow at UCLA, studying family interactions with an emphasis on how attachment experiences influence emotions, behaviors, autobiographical memory, and narrative. Dan, thank you so much for being here on Wise Girls. So much appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Francesca. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it was a pleasure to read your book because I had spent that beautiful day with you and Sharon Salzberg in New York mm -hmm. City not too long ago, which you really talked a lot about the things that you reference in the book. So, yep. Um, for people who weren't there and who would like to read your book, but maybe want to have a little bit of an introduction to what is in it and what may be in it for them, so to speak, what um, would you like to say about the wheel of awareness? 
Well, the wheel of awareness, and thank you for being at that event with Sharon, um, which was so much fun. The wheel of awareness is a practice that's based on three basic scientific ideas. One is a process called integration is the basis of well-being, and integration is differentiating things and linking them. So whether that's in your brain and your head or your head to your body or your inner bodily experience with other people or even your connection with the planet, integration looks like it's the basis of health and happiness. So that's the first thing. And there's you know, thousands of scientific references that I use to kind of come up with that incredibly simple statement, integration is health and happiness. But that's a whole other topic. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two is um, consciousness is needed for intentional change. So that's just a really interesting observation uh, that you can make about the nature of um, how we grow and change with purpose and meaning and intention. When you combine those two principles together, you get a third one, which is a, really a question, what would happen if you integrated consciousness? So that's the third issue is that the integration of consciousness should be a way you can intentionally create change towards health and happiness. So that's, that's the basic idea. And that third point, and it is really a question, really builds on the principle, you know, where attention goes, neural firing flows, and neural connection grows. So from a brain point of view, it's very possible that you can use the focus of attention to actually stimulate the growth of integration in the brain. And if you look at the whole wide array of different studies of mindfulness in, as a meditative practice or the brain as an interconnected organ of the body, basically the result of meditative practice, which cultivates three pillars, focused attention, open awareness, and kind attention, those all stimulate the growth of integration of the brain. And the reason that's important is that brain integration is the basis of optimal regulation of attention, emotion, thought, behavior, memory, ethics, relationality, self-awareness. All those things depend on integration of the brain. So all that being said is the wheel of awareness then differentiates the knowing of awareness in the hub, this metaphor of a wheel, and puts the knowns on the rim and then systematically links them with the movement of a spoke of attention uh, and then even bending the spoke around to explore awareness of awareness. And, you know, I did this with many, many people. And, and the reason I wrote the book Aware was to, number one, offer the exciting results of a 10,000-person study uh, where 10,000 people did it and I got the re reports from them um, in person. And then, number two, to teach the reader how to do the Wheel of Awareness practice. And then, number three synthesize the practice with the science so that they could see how to bring this kind of exciting um, new view of the source of consciousness into a very practical application in the reader's life. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you um, offer this wheel of awareness practice as uh, a diagram, as a meditation that can be uh, downloaded or listened to on your website in an audio format of various lengths. You have truncated versions and elongated versions. So anyone can go to drdansiegel.com if they want to actually just try it out and see what it's like. Um, 
So one of the things that I really love about your work is that you're integrating clinical uh, practice with, with, you know, folks that come into your office with this real science of uh, what is it that creates the, the traits of well-being and integration uh, that, you know, Dan Goldman and Richie Davison have, uh, you know, beautifully written about in all of their research. And then you're bringing it forward into um, your work with this foundation of attachment in terms of how secure attachment often brings forward uh, this sense of well-being into the world that then other people can feel good and trusting and relate to one another's about one another about so the purpose of sort of doing the wheel for those who might want to say well why do I have to add this to my list of things to do if you will is actually to bring forward the sense of well-being within themselves and connect with that hub that you call it which is what the plane of possibility or is that what it is so tell people what that's about well exactly well Francesca I mean you're beautifully describing it and um, you know what was so interesting uh, to realize after reading um, Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman's book Altered Traits you know was they kind of summarize these three um, pillars that you're referring to, you know, uh, focused attention, open awareness, and kind intention, or they call it compassion training. Um, and those are the research-supported traditional practices that have been studied that are about well-being. So when you hear a siren like this one that you're hearing, you know, you would, wish, in New York. <laughs> no, you would wish well-being, you know, for the person that those ambulance drivers are going to go pick up, you know, and um, that state of caring, kind intention is something you can cultivate and open awareness. And you do this in the wheel practice in the fourth segment of the rim. Um, you develop open awareness in the third segment where you're exploring mental activities, but even bending the spoke around to just open awareness to the experience of just knowing without knowing something. Knowing meaning just the subjective quality of being aware. Um, and then in the first two segments of the rim, which you begin with, you know, you're developing focused attention, you know, in the first five senses or the interior signals of the body. So it just was a really exciting moment to realize that this wheel practice, which was just built out of a scientifically um, reasoned way of integrating consciousness, by coincidence, if you will, you know, had the three pillars. So that all in one practice. So that was like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Um, and then it takes the notion of integrating consciousness, which isn't talked about in traditional approaches, and just says, look, you know, if integration is health and consciousness is needed for change. What if you integrate consciousness? So, so the thing that uh, is so neat is you could then say, well, this is a science-based practice. It does not come from any traditional approaches of a particular ism or not, or, you know, whatever. It just comes from science. So that's interesting. Um, but the second thing is, since I'm a clinician, you know, I've applied this with patients and seen them get better. And then because I'm an educator, you know, I had this opportunity you know, to give it in small workshops and then take a microphone and people would then share what they experienced and then do this systematically with 10,000 people. I've done it with way over, you know, I've done it with like, I think over 35,000 people now. Sometimes in rooms with, like I did it recently at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, there were 3,000 people in the room. So of course, I'm not going to pass a microphone around 3,000 people, but you could ask general questions like how many experienced this or that and 
um, you know, when you listen to that recording, you can you can hear the responses or well, actually you can hear me summarize what, what everyone saw is how many people would experience, for example, this sense of expansiveness in the hub or this timelessness or a sense of love. Um, and that correlated with the other studies, you know, the 10,000 ones where I could literally be face to face with people, have them with a microphone in their hand, give them whatever time they needed. And most people would say, this is really hard to put into words. And we go, yeah, of course it's hard to put into words, give it a try. Um, and that has some fascinating implications, even with Michael Pollan's recent book called How to Change Your Mind about hallucinogens, which I actually talk about, the, the, this book, Aware, was actually we had the printer before Michael published his book. Um, so it's interesting even to look at some of the research on the kind of awareness hallucinogens tap into that is showing in controlled studies to be effective for treating depression, for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety issues, um, and expanding awareness. And these are all the things, almost word for word in some ways, of what the 10,000-person study showed of the wheel practice. So then you could say, well, what is that all about? And I was having a long discussion with a guy named Morton Kringlebach, a researcher from Oxford University, about you know the deep science of awareness. And uh, Morton has published some things on hallucinogens or just on pure consciousness. And you'll see this in the Aware book. But here, what I just want to say is that when you take the 10,000-person study and the results, which are descriptions of first-person experience of them getting the same practice, the Wheel of Awareness practice. Um, so now that I'm done with that, now I have sort of more flexible in how I offer the wheel. Sometimes I give the science ahead of time, sometimes not just to mix it up. The results are still the same, but the 10,000-person study was systematically done the same way. And um, what's fascinating about it is if you take those findings and then take the scientifically reasoned proposal that the mind is an emergent property of energy flow. Um, and then go to the experts in energy who are physicists and then ask the physicists. And I'd be able to spend like, I was living with, for a week with 150 physicists, many of them mathematicians also and quantum physicists. You know, what is energy? And they would say energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. And this was like a mind-blowing time to explore with these physicists this notion of energy as a movement, a movement from possibility to actuality. So if you map that out, as I do in the Aware book, um, you know, onto a graph, and you can see that possibility is the same as huge uncertainty. And the probability state of energy at that level is called near zero. So it'd be like if you and I were talking like right now and I said, or I'm gonna think of a word and I have a word in my mind and we're sharing a million words in our common vocabulary, you would have a one out of a million chance. So that's near zero. And then I say the word ocean and that goes up to a peak of 100% because you know it's ocean, I know it's ocean. We have this shared understanding of certainty because ocean is the word. Right, so at that moment, then you've moved. If you were fly on the wall watching us, you say, "Oh, Francesca and Dan had energy flow between them. We went from possibility to actuality." 
And when you look at this graph of probability, then you can go from a peak of certainty to just beneath the peak to even an area where you could call it a plateau of elevated probability, like just words that begin with an O, for example. So it wouldn't be one out of a million, maybe it was one out of 100,000 or whatever. Um, and you can see different degrees of probability. And when you look at the 10,000 person study and ask the question, why, when people get into the pure hub experience, they so often describe timelessness and connection to everything, this idea of eternity and infinity, this sense of love, of God, of joy, of openness, of expansiveness, of relief, of this incredible sense of clarity. I think what's happening is, and this is just a guess, and it's from scientific reasoning, but that doesn't make it accurate, and I try to emphasize that in the book, it's just a proposal, but that the experience of being aware arises when energy has moved into this probability position where it may not even actually be energy anymore, but it's in this plane of possibility. And for a quantum physicist, and I work with quantum physicists about this, it's not said by quantum physics, but it's consistent with quantum physics, the idea that there's something called a quantum vacuum or a sea of potential, this area in our graph that we're calling the plane of possibility of near zero probability. And recently I was doing um, uh, an honoring of my dear old friend, John O'Donohue, who died 10 years ago. And, you know, John was a philosopher and a, a former Irish Catholic priest and a, and a mystic. Um, and we were writing a book together and many of the ideas that we were beginning to formulate in our book, which tied together the spiritual and mystical with the scientific, came alive in this gathering we had because in many ways the plane of possibility and the notion of the soul have this incredible uh, overlap. And I, right before I, I was speaking on behalf of John at this conference, I found one of his last publications, which was for the Platonic Society of Dublin on something called the Poetics of Possibility. And I mean, it was so fascinating to see his philosophical analysis of possibility and its overlap with what we're talking about, about the plane of possibility. So the idea here in short is that it's a proposal that's outlined in the book for the reader to wrestle with that the origin of consciousness, of being aware, is when the probability position of your mind is in this plane of possibility. And when you learn to tap into that, you get this incredible liberation from imprisoned plateaus of depression or anxiety or fear, recurrent memories of trauma. And then you can see literally on this visual graph, which is a proposed mechanism that explains the metaphor of the wheel, where the hub is the plane of possibility, and all the stuff on the rim are plateaus and peaks that are above the plane. Yeah, and I am visualizing that because you have beautiful diagrams that your daughter Madeline uh, created in the book. Yes, and so um, they're very helpful in terms of helping people really uh, integrate what it is that you're talking about and writing about with what it is that they can kind of own and visualize. So I want to go back to a couple of things that you said, because uh, one of them is understanding plateaus and understanding, you know, sort of this hub and this sense of soul, because clearly I think well, first, I'd like to say that I brought a diehard science person with me who is a real skeptic and who really was just like, you know, I think he might be on to something, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, this was the event with Sharon. 
Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, a couple okay. months ago when I saw you. Yeah. And so basically what I'm getting at is all the things that you talked about then are here in this book. And so it was not... Um, you're sharing this, you were sharing the same information. And so this person was very much not interested in just hearing, you know, meditation is great for your well-being. You know, he was yeah. interested in understanding well, how and why. Yeah, it's so interesting, Francesca, you say this because at the event with John O'Donohue, where we had basically uh, uh, two days to go over this stuff, doing the wheel and everything, there was a quantum physicist who was a visiting scholar at the Max Planck Institute in Germany who flew over to Ireland and he came to me at the break and I thought he was going to like do the usual science, you know, pushback. And he goes, I think you're really onto something. <laughs> and, then, and the next day it was so beautiful because, you know, we did the wheel and then we were going more over, you know, integrating it with, you know, an understanding of poetry and, and life itself and attachment, all that stuff. And he was so excited as a quantum physicist, you know, which, which was really exciting. So I'm glad your friend had, because not everyone, you know, potentially could have that attitude, you know, and it's... It, well, not, he didn't buy all of it. He bought some of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but what he liked was that you leave open the possibility that, of course, you know, science itself is not absolute, right? And that there's expansion even there. And so exactly. uh, I'm careful to reiterate that in the book, not only in your in-person teachings and, and that kind of a thing. So, you know, we're all on this uh, path of exploration if we're coming from the plane of possibility, but a lot of people aren't. And one of the things that really obscures folks from dropping into that space or even wanting to approach it is because of trauma, or you might want to say insecure attachment or developmental trauma as a child growing up or whatnot. And you talk about a woman named Teresa in the book, um, which I'm sure is not her real name and you've respected her privacy, really? um, but that, that, you know, she reminded me a lot of my story to be perfectly honest, because I came at it from a different way. I didn't understand it scientifically from the plane of possibility uh, and the quantum vacuum. I understood it from the more uh, Buddhist uh, perspective known as Buddha nature or uh, basic mm. goodness. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened for me was, again, I used to think I was my story, and I used to think that all the things that had happened to me were the things that I were and had to be, and it was this reified habit pattern of maladaptive survival strategies that I would lock into, which included various compulsive behaviors and addictions and not very um, successful uh, kinds of activities and satisfying or sustainable or not conducive to well-being and eudaimonia, as we talk about, but more these hedonistic, ephemeral pleasures pleasure-seeking behaviors. And then when I learned of this sort of Buddha nature piece or learned that there was nothing wrong with me, but I had learned these conditioned behaviors, these plateaus, as you use, that had been rigidly erected for survival and safety, but that had been then reified, so they became the pattern. And so they would come up and I would act out of those and not out of the hub, as you say, in the wheel, that I was just sort of, you know, acting in the periphery. Um, that once I sort of had that basic understanding, it let me then do the exploration into what would be the hub or the plane of possibility or Buddha nature or basic goodness because I was able to recognize that my maladaptive behavior was actually at one time helpful and not something that was, you know, uh, all of who I was. That there was this other really emergent uh, part or as Eugene Gendlin might talk about, the implicit, right? This thing that wanted to move forward within me that wasn't all of who I was and that I could learn to cultivate the relationship with what that is. 
So that's just my part of the story about that because Teresa reminded me a lot of this. So can you just talk a little bit about these plateaus, how they become reified, why they get in the way, and why people who have trauma might not be able to access the hub so easily, even if it is so beneficial and has all these amazing experiences that you talk about in terms of connection and love and sensations that are um, bringing us together? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, Francesca, I would just say yes. <laughs> to everything you're saying. I mean, you're describing it so powerfully. And, uh, you know, uh, so Teresa, of course, you know, is uh, not her name, but, you know, the experience I think that she went through as someone who experienced severe trauma um, is something that uh, is um, crucial, I think, for all of us to realize that, you know, you're born into the world from the plane of possibility, really. Um, and this is just from a physics point of view, you know, you got tons of sperm and tons of eggs around and the infinite number of combinations virtually of what could have made you made your body. So you're born into a world, of course, with a body that comes from a long evolutionary history. So you have what are called experience expectant um, growth of synaptic connections and, and, and brain structure basically that says you deserve to be loved. So when that doesn't happen, one of the brain's responses, you know, is to get uh, very agitated, of course, and to seek more connection. And if that still doesn't happen, or if you're humiliated and harmed, you know, it can lead to a fragmentation of the capacity of the mind to hold in awareness these painful states, especially when the attachment figure, you know, is the source of terror. That's called disorganized attachment. So. In all of that, and even in less severe kinds of experiences, shame can arise, a feeling that the self is defective, not just that you did something wrong as in guilt, but shame has this deeper feeling, which is associated with helplessness, you know? So, so that's one of the issues that we talk about in the book, of course, you know, Teresa's experience of shame. But the other is that, you know, ideally in attachment relationships, you'll have a predictable sense of being cared about by your caregiver and connected to them in a way that involves these S's, you know, you're seen, you're safe, you're soothed, and you develop security. And when that happens, you have an internal sense of everything's going to be fine. And you're given the resilience to be okay with when things aren't uncertain because you've had the certainty of those connections, right? So when you don't have that, then uncertainty becomes something that's terrifying by itself. And if you think about just the mathematics of it, if it's true that awareness comes from the plane of possibility, the interesting mathematical reality of that is that what is uncertain is where possibility comes from. And so if this proposal turns out to be true, then what it means is, for whatever reason, we don't know why, you get the subjective experience of knowing from the plane of possibility. So we don't know why that would be, but that's a proposal, that's where it comes from. Then it's not only the experience of being aware, but it's also the source of other options. Because the plane is the formless source of all form. So then you add a third component, which is the spaciousness of the plane and the uncertainty of the plane 
are just its qualities. And you may have a reaction to that that is a learned plateau that says, for example, uncertainty is bad. Avoid uncertainty. Try to guarantee certainty because uncertainty means you're going to be abused or abandoned or neglecting all these things. So what I try to point out in the book for Teresa as an example is sadly for people who've been traumatized, just as you're powerfully describing, you lock into certain plateaus of behavior that then are getting lost in familiar places in part, not in total, but in part because the plane of possibility has become something you're reacting against. Now, that both fragments awareness, of course, and dissociation, but it also means that you're not able to tap into the freedom of choice and change that the plane of possibility has because of your own learned restrictions because uncertainty is dangerous. And the dangerous thing is not inherent to the plane. It's a reaction of a plateau to the history of uncomfortable and distressing and terrifying and painful and abusive along a whole range of experiences. So that being said, Teresa's plane of possibility was there. I had to work with her to let her know that nothing can take the plane away and that she needs to be on a courageous journey of dropping beneath those plateaus, which of course are trying to protect her on the one hand, but are actually imprisoning her unintentionally on the other. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% um, feel that, know that. And you know, they say the mind that created the problem can't solve the problem. And so when you're stuck on the plateau, you can't reach the hub. You're not in the room of you know curiosity and awe and that childlike wonder that they talk about that is sort of the you know invitation that we can bring in when we feel a little bit more grounded or connected to something that although it is emergent and changing and possible, whatever it is that might emerge from that, it's not, you know, we don't know, um, that it's not such a, um, it's not so scary. It's not over coupled, as we would say in somatic experiencing, right, with terror. The uncertainty exactly. that yeah. we don't carry the same, the same meaning. Yeah, and exactly. And the thing that's so beautiful about what you're saying, and I think so important for anyone on a journey of growth is you know the way we truly connect with each other is through the plane of possibility because your plane and my plane and all of our planes are identical. So we differentiate in these plateaus and peaks and that's fine. But if they're imprisoning us, both in their being rigid or chaotic and you know putting us outside of the harmony and, and, and integration, you know, if they're doing that to us, that's not good, but that also keeps us isolated. You see, because we keep on um, being separate from others, even though we may not even intend to do that. So, um, you know, what's so exciting about it when people have done the wheel practice, and this is what I'm so excited about, about the book aware, when, you know, workshop participants have done the wheel and, and, and I see them later on or they email me, um, you know, what's so thrilling about it is, and you can hear it in the vocabulary we can now have, you, you can see that the simple metaphor of a wheel with a hub, a spoke of attention, and a rim, when it's connected to the deep mechanism of plane being the hub, the way you have plateaus and peaks being the rim, and there's a whole other discussion about what the, the spoke is, um, but when you look at just that level of it, 
for the workshop participants who then meet for a second round, you know, in a different setting, you can see when someone has learned to live from the hub, that would be the metaphor, to live from the plane would be the mechanism. And you can feel in them this incredible joy and freedom, right? And so, you know, when I sent the book out for endorsement to a whole wide range of people, you know, scientists, physicists, uh, you know, um, pra meditation practitioners, therapists, you know, I just wanted to see who weren't necessarily familiar with it. What would happen if people could read a book like this, try out the wheel and see what they did. So, so the endorsers were really, it was exciting for me to get their response. And then I'm, I'm so thrilled to see when people actually read the book, you know, can they also experience what workshop participants have experienced or, you know, people come to our website cause we just, you know, stream the, the wheel practice and we've had lots of, I mean, over a million people stream it. And, you know, it's so interesting because it's simple, you know, wheel, hub and rim and spoke, whatever, very simple, but really powerful. And when the mechanism is then laid underneath the metaphor of the wheel, people really get it. And the reason I structured the book the way I did was, you know, you hear about these five individuals, you know, in the beginning and you say, okay, well, here is the wheel practice. And this is how they use it either as a drawing in the case of a five-year-old or as an inspiration in the case of someone older, you know, or Teresa, her experience with the trauma. But then you go and you learn it yourself as a reader. Then you go through the science and then you get into not just the brain science, but this possible physics mechanism. Um, and then you say, well, let's return to those five people. And now let's review their story through the lens of the plane of possibility perspective and see in a deep, deep way how the changes they experience, which you heard about in the very beginning of the book, can now be understood in a profoundly um, richer way because of this proposal and see how it fits for your life as a reader. Does this fit with you, you know? And so I'm really thrilled to see what happens with that because I, I have no idea, you know, I often, you know, I, I have a very doubting mind, you know, and so I'm always doubting everything I say or write or whatever, you know, and part of why I have all these interns working with me when I revise a book like The Developing Mind is I, I tell them, you know, I want you to basically find some evidence that what I said in the prior edition is wrong. And, you know, and they say, you meant right. I said, no, no, no. I want you to find the evidence that it's wrong and let's get rid of it and, you know, come up with something new. That'll be really fun. And they look at me like I'm nuts. But, you know, now that we're on the third edition of Developing Mind, you know, getting these wonderful, wonderful research assistants to try to find the, the data, the, the evidence to go against this stuff, it looks like there might be a possibility it's true. And uh, if that's true, and the mind is in fact an emergent property of energy, then taking it the next step of saying, what is energy? And how is energy happening? Yes, of course, in the brain, because the brain is electrochemical and mechanical energy too. New studies show it's that too, but it's energy flow. The body is energy flow and our relationships are energy flow. So then it seems to me as a scientist, and I, I had a, uh, a time to talk in a public meeting or annual meeting with Antonio Damasio and I presented it to him because no one talks about the mind as energy, you know, for the most part. So I said to Antonio Damasio, you know, this is our view. The mind is both within and between. And one way of understanding that is it's an emergent 
phenomena of, of you know, property of energy flow. What do you think about that? What do you feel about that? And I pause and I was so nervous because he doesn't always agree with what people say by any means. And he said that is scientifically a very, very solid and creative thing to do. And I was so excited because then it's very natural then to say, how can we understand our inner and our inter aspect of mind and stop being locked into, you know, what uh, Hippocrates said, you know, 2,500 years ago, mind is just the activity of the brain. The brain is important, yes, but the brain is part of a much larger story of mind. And, and I know that goes against what a lot of scientists say, and I know I get a lot of flack from, from psycho, psycho, psych, psychiatry researchers and psychology researchers and brain researchers, but I think we need to really have an open mind and look at the deep science of mind as a, the possibly an emergent property of energy. And even though people don't talk like that, as Damasio said, it's a scientifically sound thing to do. And, you know, we've been doing it for 25 years, but, you know, when you extend it then to the 10,000 person study, wow, you get these really exciting ways of understanding things that turn out to fit well with meditative practices, to fit well with attachment research, to fit well with an understanding of poetry, philosophy, spirituality, mysticism. I mean, it's a really exciting moment, I got to say, where you have all these very different fields, you know, neuroscience and spirituality, that through the lens of seeing mind as an emergent property of energy, which we do in this field, interpersonal neurobiology, you can say, wow, maybe there's a time to bring the walls down and have a common, respectful sharing and connecting and bridging of these profoundly important ways of knowing. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so beautiful. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving the fact that you're able to ground all of this in such science uh, because I think it does really show to a lot of people, like my friend, that might not otherwise be so convinced that there's a value here that isn't just, you know, sort of new agey or hippy dippy or whatever it is to doing things like meditation and to being able to understand and recognize that there is this uh, feeling that can emerge that you said, I think the words you used were joy and freedom. I call it embodiment, whatever it is. And you told a beautiful story about how you were in um, the UK recently and somebody who was uh, a member of, I believe, parliament who had done it, you know, uh, you reflected back on them. Well, now that you've done this and you've had this joy and freedom and love feeling, is this something that you can put into the policy that you're enacting? With yeah, yeah. It wasn't in the UK, but it was another country. But yes, exactly like you're saying. Yeah. Was, that in, was that in the book or was that in the workshop? No, that was in the workshop, I think. Yeah. But, you, but, but I'm putting it in there because this wants to shift to the next aspect of the conversation about applied, I, I, would, I call it, for me, I call it applied mindfulness or embodied mindfulness. Um, those are my terms, not your terms, but the um, idea of what it means to live in a world where, as you do say, we don't treat the world like a trash can or that we don't treat one another as these isolated um, folks that are sort of all uh, plateaus, even in the way that you talk about science and poetry and whatever, right? Those are all sort of plateaus, right? right, right. So how can we respect the uniqueness and then do the um, integration, the coherent narrative, if you will, of our shared existence using yeah. this practice as it applies to real life. Well, you know, Francesca, it's so interesting you say that I, I um, am inspired by our discussion in this moment, and also it, it resonates with what happened when, you know, uh, we had this 
you know, 400 person gathering in honor of John O'Donohue, you know, and many of the individuals were devout Catholic practitioners because um, John had been a Catholic priest. Um, we were able to have this uh, discussion with many of the people there who were also steeped in uh, Irish mysticism, you know, Celtic mysticism. Um, and then John, as a philosopher, was also, you know, very knowledgeable about Hegel and Meister Eckhart. Um, and he was also a poet. And, you know, the experience of poetry is actually quite different from prose, especially scientific prose. Um, so we found this incredible common ground through the lens of the plane of possibility. And I love brain science, but I'm just going to say it pretty directly. If you stop with the brain to try to understand the mind, you don't find the bridge to spirituality or poetry. You know, and now that's not a reason to go forward, but it's certainly an outcome of the journey that when you do take the step to say, well, mind is more than brain, it includes a brain, but it's more than brain. It's an emergent property of energy flow that happens in your whole body. So, you know, Peter Levine's wonderful work in somatic experiencing and Pat Ogden's work, you know, we, you have to include the whole body, not just the brain. But then, you know, as an attachment researcher, what happened with me was, you know, I was steeped in studying relationality. And with Peter Sange and Otto Scharmer, you know, we're studying what are called generative social fields, you know, and just look at the way we're related to the whole planet with climate change, you know. So relationality is a sharing of energy flow patterns, I think. And so if you stay with just the skull, you're like the story of the blind man and the elephant. You're just saying, I believe in the toe and the whole elephant is the toe. Well, no, it's not the whole toe. So it's not that you're wrong about the toe. It's just the toe is part of the foot, which is part of the leg, which is part of the whole elephant. So we're inviting people to take the blinders off and embrace the importance of their particular silo discipline, whether it's anthropology or neuroscience, and say, you know, there's a relationality that anthropology beautifully illustrates, and there's a beautiful wisdom that comes from the study of neuroscience. So we're not saying those areas are wrong by any means. If anything, we're really honoring the hard work that's done in any of the individual disciplines, but then saying, where's the common ground? That's what we do in interpersonal neurobiology is say, what if you brought all the hard, hard scientific disciplines together into one framework? Mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, including neuroscience and you know, psychiatry, my field, you know, psychology, which I'm trained in as an attachment researcher, and linguistics, sociology, anthropology, all the other fields, philosophy, now meditative practice, religion, spirituality, poetry, music. I mean, what if you brought all of our human endeavors together? So instead of just being separate or warring with each other, I'm right, no, you're wrong, I'm right, no, no, You say, what if everyone's right? But with a different vocabulary, what would be the common ground that would allow you to see? And so far, this common ground of interpersonal neurobiology, which sees the mind as an emergent process of energy, starting with, let's say, consciousness, our proposal that is discussed in the book Aware is that the mind's awareness happens when the probability position moves into the plane. And when you start embracing that as a practitioner and do the wheel every day, just as one example, there may be lots of ways of developing access to the plane, 
wheel is just one of 10,000, you know, but it's one that I've studied, so that's in the book. And I even talk about John's quote from a, some teaching we did together where he said, it's not about the method, it's about the presence, you know. Presence comes from the plane of possibility, that's what I think. And however you can get there, great. This is not trying to sell a wheel. I mean, we don't even sell it. I'm give it away for free. The idea is that we are in a position as a humanity to awaken consciousness to the deep reality of our interconnectedness. And that reality is scientifically grounded in the view of mind as an emergent property of energy. And that energy is both within the whole body, including its head brain, because there's a brain around the heart and a brain around the gut, and happening between. That who we are, the self, is not just the brain or the interior skin encased body, it's also a between. So, you know, as you know, I talk about mui, where you are a me inside a body, but you're also a we in your relationship with people on the planet. And to bring them together and honor both, you have a mui, MWE, and we're having people all across the world in their own language say, how do you combine the I and me with the us or we in whatever languaging that sounds fun to do, like yonos in Spanish, for example, or mui in English, you know, and we're collecting those things that it's so fun because like I did the eighth grade graduation speech for um, the school I advised, you know, the blue school in New York City. And I got some email back recently, you know, I, I concluded my, um, uh, you know, my speech to them with the idea that who they are is a me plus a we equals a we. And they're now after their graduation of the summer vacations, people are reporting they're using that in talking about who they are. And if you just try it out for the feeling in your body, as you say, you know, we can do this, it gives you a, a grounding in the body with the me part, a grounding in our relationality that allows the plane of possibility to open you to changing the plateau definition of self that's so usually skin encased or even worse, just skull encased, you know, and it opens that plateau up to the plane where new possibilities arise and you realize who you are is a me plus a we, you're a we. And if we could do that around the planet, we would have a whole different world. Yeah, no, that's really beautiful. And it reminds me of the story that, um, you know, one of your friends and colleagues and one of my teachers, Jack Cornfield, talks about, about uh, in Africa, you know, they'll say, how are you doing? And they'll say, we are doing well when grandma feels well and we are doing not so well when grandma is sick. And so that sense of community and we is built in the village, the community, the larger sense, not just this isolated sense of self, because as we know, um, you know, people can in fact die of loneliness and isolation, just like they can die of hunger and thirst. And so it's it's really an affliction that I'm sure that you as a clinician see played out somatically with a lot of folks um, in terms of their, their well-being, not just mentally and emotionally, but physically um, also. Totally, totally. I mean, sadly, when you just look at the statistics in the last few years of the increase in depression, anxiety, and suicide, um, even though we are, in quotes, connected, unquote, you know, on the internet, People are actually, when you look at the studies, feeling more isolated, more alone. So if you think about this notion, S-E-L-F, self, as a solo self, you know, 
that something's happening in contemporary societies, which is making people feel more and more and more isolated. So if you just think about it in a very basic way, if who we are, which I guess is what the word self is supposed to refer to, because I'm with my, my research assistants now in the next book, you know, we're saying, what do you do with this word self? I mean, what are we going to do with it? Because, you know, in science, we have the term self-regulation. You can even use a lovely term like self-compassion. You can use a term like self-soothing. All those sound so cool. But sadly, from a linguistic point of view, each of those lovely terms just implicitly reinforces the idea that that word self means it's in your body or, you know, or worse, it's in your head, you know? And so I, you know, you'd be amazed what words can do. Like I've been amazed what we does for people. So I keep on thinking we should maybe either find a new word um, or just qualify the word, like say solo self, when you really mean like when someone's doing a selfie, uh, you know, uh, it's a solo selfie or something like that. You go, oh, yeah, right. I'm, you know, so something that, I don't know, you know, so like in this next book I'm writing for parents, you know, uh, with Tina Bryson, you know, uh, we're, we're going over it together and it's so tricky because there's so many words where you were, use the word self that just innately perpetuates the toxic lie that the self is in fact defined by your skin. Your skin embodies yourself. So you might say, well, of course it does. Just come up with another word, you know? So I'm not sure what we should do. I'm really, like, I wake up in the mornings after dreaming about this, <laughs> night after night after night. I don't know what we should do, but I think together we should try to figure it out because even in, like, writing this book showing up, you know, it's like, okay, for parents, if they could just understand that if they keep on telling little Danny or little Francesca that who they are is just in this body, they're destined for some really sad, disconnected, isolated, lonely ways, which ultimately, if it, to the extreme, can lead to suicide, you know? And so what we're trying to do is appeal to parents, and in this case for the Aware book, appeal to the public, to say, let's wake up from this nightmare of a toxic lie that is so hidden that we use this and are doing this constant othering. Because of course, you say phrases that sound so beautiful like self and other, I'm gonna love self and other. No, no, you're loving an inner experience and you're gonna love your inner experience. The being in the body that's there is you is really you. It's just the inter aspect of you. Now they have an, their own interiority that's not yours, right? So they can have the me, but there's also the we and you're connected in the we. So I don't know what we should do with that self word. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's not, you know, I, I think we should call self-compassion work, by the way, inner compassion. No, I believe you. And I am 100% with you on the terminology thing because A, I'm a poet. 
and B, I'm also very, very um, keen on understanding how, in particular, the English language is very dominant about certain ways in which it's constructed and very much binary and does not allow a lot of room for a both-and perspective. And so this idea of inner and outer is beautiful. I love that. I also think that maybe we can look at, um, for example, the LGBTIQ uh, you know, area. I just did an uh, interview with one of my friends who's trans, and so yeah. that sort of has more of an implied sense. Uh, I've heard pan, you know, in terms of pansexual, for example, as a more broad version yeah. of inclusivity and um, connection. And so I think that, you know, there are parts of our culture and society that are trying to formulate words that are more appropriate for, uh, you know, our uniqueness, our inner experiences, as well as our inter experiences as we move forward. So well, I, I think, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. No, go ahead. Finish. Say. No, no, no. So I, you know, I, I, uh, I think this is a journey we should all really start to dream about and think about because you'd be amazed how words and as a poet, you know this. Um, what they do, even when you just look at the brain, is you know they set the stage for what the brain tends to do, which is basically take energy flow patterns and turn them into concepts and categories, even before words, then once you get a word for it, it strengthens the plateau, using that view, uh, of a category, so that you're no longer perceiving with the open plane of possibility, you are having this, what I call, filter of consciousness through the plateau that only allows, for example, a notion of who you are as self, skin in case, body being, you know, only allows the peaks that arise that are consistent with that view. Once you drop people into the plane, and we do this in the workshops on, on AWARE all the time, you know, um, when they do the Wheel of Awareness, once people drop out of that plateau of self is separate, the tears that come, the love that is emerging, the joy, the unbelievable energy about our interconnectedness. So that's why... Like, I don't even use the word outer. I don't make it inner versus outer. I use it inner and inter. inter. So, that, so that it's like this betweenness, you know, that happens that is you, right? Outer kind of implies it's outside of you. So I don't know as a poet if you're okay with that. So yeah. you'll hear me say inner and inter. Um, a lot, and I know it's weird to say. No, I don't think it is at all because it's relational and it's very much in tune with our microorganismic, you know, flow back and forth of how yeah. in things and how we keep out toxic things. I mean, you can even go back to these little, you know, uh, what are they? Uh, these, you know, amoebas, if you will. <laughs> you know that they regulate that way too. It's always a back and forth, and so that's our life today as an embodied Dan or Francesca is a back and forth of Mui. Yeah. Now, for some reason, I've lost the sound. Okay. Well, we're almost wrapping up here, so I guess it's maybe the two out. Now it's good. I got the sound now. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to say, well, we're about to wrap up, so maybe that's our Mui cue. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. To cue out. Um, any parting words? Any last thoughts about, um, because I really think, let me just say this, and then I'll, I'll turn it to you. What I think that you do so beautifully is you're able to put through a scientific, as Sharon put it, the language of the day, language, 
for folks who maybe perhaps like you are indeed skeptical around some of why these practices work, even if they're, you know, evidence-based that people say, well, I feel better if I drop into the plane or I do this, you know, wheel of awareness or whatever, but they want to know why, how, that right. they can talk to your book and actually see how you've tracked that this has worked over your 10,000 people and more um, in your studies and all of that. And then they can, again, as the Buddha said, for my audience, not, per not perhaps yours, you know, ahi pastico, come and see for yourself. Check it out. Totally. Right. Exactly. That's what I say in the beginning of the book. You know, this, this is something you should try out and see how it works for you. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, Dan, for all of the work that you do um, for everyone and, uh, you know, just really your time and your presence today. I could feel it over the miles and through the screen. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Francesca. I can feel it too. All right. Much love. Onward we, we go. We, on, we, on we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.